Hallelujah. Jesus has broken our chains. Colossians chapter 2 says that we experienced the spiritual circumcision. Since we sang that song, I thought I'd talk a little bit about it. And that spiritual circumcision is God has changed our hearts and cleansed our thoughts and he's rendered our old nature unable to dominate our lives anymore. So that in Romans chapter 6, the word of God said that sin shall no longer have dominion or control over me. Why? Because I have a new nature. And we're no longer enslaved to our own nature. So whatever your chains are, if you're walking in bondage, you don't have to be. If you're a believer, you can be set free. We're going to be looking in the book of Colossians. You're going to experience a miracle. I'm going to teach to you in about 35 minutes when I'm still teaching my class. And it's taken us two years to get here. <laughs> and, uh, we're looking in depth at the book of Colossians. Stand with me, chapter 3, verses 1. Through five. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, the word if is the first class condition, could be translated since you have been raised. He's not questioning if you have, but if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on, that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And one of the most profound statements in the New Testament is chapter 4. Christ who is our life. Can you imagine that? Christ indeed is my life. When he is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, treat the parts of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality and impurity and passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that the Spirit of God might guide and might lead. we will find strength and power to live a life pleasing to you. And we'll understand how that is done in Christ's name. Amen. Living a life pleasing to God. Paul prayed for the Colossian believers in, in uh, chapter 1. In verse 10, he said, because of the love that they have for the saints, and because of the hope that they had in Christ, he said, I'm praying that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in every respect. What does a life pleasing to God look like? What would that look like? Chapters 3 and 4, starting with verse 5, begin to tell us what that looks like. We tend to, as believers, see this 
as a list of do's and don'ts. But I don't want us to see it as a list of do's and don'ts because God could never give us a list that covers everything in our lives and what we should do when we should do it. But he gives us broad principles that we can apply in every situation. And so when you look at chapters 3 and 4, beginning with verse 5, it is toward the type of person I am to be. And once I learn how I am to be, then it will take care of everything that I am to do. See? So the focus really is on being and not on doing. But before we get to chapters 3 and 4, we need to look at the context. How did we get there? It's always important to look at context. Why is Paul addressing this manner of living a life pleasing to God? Why has he spent two chapters giving us these details? Well, the book of Colossians is divided into two distinct sections. Chapters 1 and 2 is doctrine or instruction. Chapters 3 and 4 is practice, application. Okay. Chapters 1 and 2, the reason to behave. Chapter 3 and 4, how I should behave based upon what I've learned in 1 and 2. So we don't want to just jump into 3 and 4 without giving a basis for behaving that way. Because that is what God always does. He always gives you a basis for behavior before he tells you to behave. God never tells us behave without reason. He always gives us reason. And so it's important that we examine chapters 1 and 2 before we look at 3 and 4. So we want to look at the reason to behave before the requirements to behave. The historical context of the book of Colossians. Colossians was a circular letter, which meant that it was to be read in several churches. Matter of fact, it was to be read in a region, uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. The churches included Coloss- the church at Colossae, uh, Laodicea, and something Hierapolis also. And you see all three of those churches are mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 13, and Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. So this is a letter that's to go to the region. Why is called Paul right into this region? Well, the people in the churches in that region are under attack from false teachers. Uh, heretics are now in that church or in those churches in that region, and they are influencing the people. Well, what are they attacking? They are attacking the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And you will find that the book of Colossians has the most expansive and detailed account of the person and the work of Jesus Christ in all of the scripture. Why? Because the people are under attack and they are being attacked about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They are being attacked relative to the way of salvation. Is Jesus Christ the only way to be saved? And then they are giving them an alternative way to live that would be pleasing to God. So Paul writes the church in Colossae to clarify for them 
the way of salvation, the sufficiency of Christ, and the way to live a life pleasing to God. Now, how did they get this error in the church? The error in the church is that Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis uh, is a mixture of Christianity with Gnosticism, extreme Judaism, and something based upon Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Hellenistic Greek philosophy. Anytime you take any religious position and you mix it with Christianity, that is called syncretism, from which we get synchronized. So they're trying to synchronize these other religious positions with Christianity. Anytime you have that happening, you have syncretism. So we understand Judaism is that they wanted the people to keep the Old Testament law, legalism, you know. Uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 1, Paul is coming from Antioch, and he's being attacked by the Judaizers, and they're saying that the new believers need to keep the law of Moses and they need to be circumcised to be saved. And so he goes to the Jerusalem council to clear this up and say, no, 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 no. Peter says it, and James stands up and says, no, the way of salvation is through Christ and Christ alone and faith and faith alone. And we get saved just the way the Gentiles do, which is a very uh, profound statement. And then we have the Greeks who focused on philosophy, wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 1 would tell us that in chapter 2 that Jesus provides all the wisdom and knowledge that we need. And then we have Gnosticism. So we don't know a lot about Gnosticism. Gnosticism focused on how to relate to creation and how God related to it. And they, and they, they focus on exclusive Knowledge and the mysteries of God. Gnosticism, let me explain just a little bit about that, had two prevailing thoughts that drove that theology and that was influencing this church. Number one, Gnosticism taught that spirit is good. Okay? Spirit is good. God is good. Spirit. But they also taught that matter or the physical world, or the created world, is evil. You got to keep that in mind. Matter is good. I mean, matter is evil. Spirit is good. Based upon those two positions, that theological position, they concluded that Jesus Christ could not be holy God. If spirit is good and matter is evil, then Jesus no way can be God. Why? Because if matter is evil, then a holy God would not create a material world. Get that? If matter is evil, then God would not create material world. What do we believe by Jesus? He's creator. Well, that's saying, no, he can't be creator and God at the same time because a holy God would not do that. All right? Next thing they taught was that uh, if matter is evil, then holy God would not come in a body. We believe that Jesus came and he was God in what? The body. And so based upon matter being evil, 
holy God would not come in a body because a body is evil. Consequently, based upon these beliefs, Jesus Christ alone is insufficient to save. And the way to live a life pleasing to God, you needed legalism, you needed mysticism, you needed asceticism. Asceticism means that you do harsh things to your body to accomplish some type of spiritual good. Let me just say, the way that you bring your body under control is you walk in the spirit. Galatians chapter 5, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. When they, they were teaching that you do nothing pleasurable for your body. You can do nothing pleasurable for your body all day long, but your mind still thinks of bad things. So <laughs> how do you control that? You walk in the spirit. So, if you understand that principle, then you understand why the book of Colossians was written. And then the book just begins to come alive. And you understand why Paul has written the things that he has written. So how does Paul address this heretical belief, spirit is good, matter is evil? They said that Jesus could not be God. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. Paul answers that. He is the image of the invisible God. The word image there is icon, which means that he is the exact representation and manifestation of all that God is. Hebrews 1 says that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature. When someone is the exact, perfect representation of God's nature, that means that they are omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, holy, sinless. So Paul says to this notion, he is not God. He said, yes, he is. Jesus, he's God. He is icon. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 7 through 11, when you see me, you have seen who? The Father. Yes. Uh, John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Isaiah wrote about it. Isaiah 7, verse 14 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call him what? Emmanuel. Emmanuel means what? God with us. Who is Emmanuel with us? This son that is conceived by a virgin. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What? Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus would say in John, or the Word of God says in John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. Why does Paul write Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that first phrase? Because they were attacking the notion that Jesus was God. He said, yes, he's God. Secondly, not only is he God, he said, but he is God and he created the material world, verses 16 through 19. Look at that. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in himself, that in himself, that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The word fullness there is the word pleroma. Jesus is pleroma. What does pleroma mean? Pleroma means the totality of divine essence. All that God is, is in Jesus. He's God, but not only is he God, but according to this passage, he is creator. Why is Paul writing that? Because they were attacking that he could not be God. And if he were God, he would not create. So Paul says, yes, he is. He's creator. John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, uh, John was dealing with the same issue. And they were saying that Jesus and his body was not real. It was an optical illusion some of them were teaching. teaching. Look what John said in 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. And then he says, which we have looked upon. The word looked upon in 1 John is not just I saw him, but I gazed at him. Can you imagine God in the flesh? What would you be doing? God. They were gazing at him. I would imagine, you know, we, they don't say a lot about this, but, you know, if I were there, I'd probably have a hard time taking my eyes off of him. Once I came to the conclusion that he was God, I'd be gazing at him. So they heard him, they saw him, they gazed at him, and he says, we touched him. <laughs> Every now and then, I'd probably just brush up against him. Man, I touched God. Man, I touched God. I touched God. <laughs> Can you imagine going back home and tell you, I touched God. <laughs> it's like we, we, we touched him. Concerning the word of life, the life was manifest. We've seen him. We bear witness. We declare to you eternal life, which with the Father and manifest to us that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Paul said in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, giving him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, of those in heaven, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord and creator. Okay, he's God. He's God in the body. And this God in the body... His creator. They also said that Jesus was not sufficient to save. How does Paul respond to that? Look in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. I haven't started preaching yet. This is the teaching part, okay? You'll know when it switches, all right? <laughs> chapter 2, verse 10. You are complete 
in him. You have everything that you need to be saved, to stay saved, and to live saved. All that you need is Jesus. How do you know that you're complete in Christ? Well, because of what Paul has said before chapter 2, verse 10, and what he says afterwards. For instance, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, he says that I am a joint heir with Jesus. I'm adopted into the family. I'm a child of God, and I have an inheritance. Chapter 1, uh, verse 12, he'll give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. I'm a child of God. I've been adopted into the family. I have an inheritance. But not only that, verse 13 and 14 said that I have been delivered, I have been transformed, I am transferred, I have been redeemed, and I have been uh, forgiven. Look at verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, that is through his blood, he purchased my salvation, my sins are forgiven. Now, if I was in a Baptist church, a real one, somebody would be saying, amen. I'm going to say it to myself. Amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> Listen, isn't that worthy of amen? Delivered, transferred, redeemed, forgiven? Amen. Hey, glory. Amen. All right, we're getting there. We're getting there. We're moving. We're moving toward the Baptist experience here. <laughs> Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 and Luke 22 says that I've been justified. I've been reconciled. I'm no longer an enemy of God. I am holy. I am unblameable. I am beyond reproach. Man, what a statement. He says, and through him, he reconciled all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And although you were previously alienated, hostile in your attitude and mind, engaged in evil deeds, and yet he has now reconciled you in himself, in, in the body of his flesh through death, in order to present you to himself holy, blameless, beyond Reproach. Can you imagine that? Justified. Declared right. Reconciled. No longer an enemy. Holy. Unblameable. Beyond reproach. When God sees me, he doesn't see me. He sees the shed blood of Jesus Christ and he declares me holy. Unblameable. Beyond reproach. I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. Beyond what you could imagine, I'm saved. We used to sing about it, right? Saved by his power divine. Y'all know it. Saved to new life sublime. Life now is sweet and my joy is complete. For I'm Yes, say it again. Saved. One more time. Saved. I'm saved. <laughs> amen. Okay. Amen, brother. <laughs> amen. I'm saved. I've been delivered. I've been adopted. I've been transferred. I've been transformed. I've been redeemed. I've been forgiven. I've been justified. I've been reconciled. I'm holy. I'm blameless beyond reproach. But listen, that ain't all. Chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Buried with him in baptism. Raised to walk a new life. 
I'm spiritually alive because I was born spiritually dead. My sins are forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, they're taken away from me. They shall be remembered no more. The guilty sentence that was against me, the Old Testament law as well as the law of God that I broke in my own heart. I have no more enemies that can defeat me. The devil's been defeated. The demons have been defeated. Death has been defeated. I'm saved again. I'm saved. Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all your transgressions of wrongdoing, having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way. He's nailed it to the cross. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public, dispelled them, having triumphed over them through himself. Everything that I need to be saved, to stay saved, and to live saved, I have in Jesus Christ. So, if that is true, then I don't need, and I'm not going to read these passages, according to Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 27, I don't need to learn some mystery, mysteries about the mystery of God because it says in that passage, Jesus reveals the mystery of God. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 says, I don't need any secret knowledge and wisdom because in Christ I have all the knowledge and wisdom that I need. I have the mind of Christ according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 it says, I don't need a philosophy that denies the deity of Christ. In chapter 2 verse 11 he says, I don't need physical circumcision. In chapter 2 verses 16 through 17, I don't need legalism. I don't need to keep the Old Testament law. Chapter 2 verses 18 and 19, I don't need mystery. I don't need the, the angels. I don't need to worship the angels in order to get my uh, message to God. Uh, why would they worship the angels? Gnosticism. God is holy. How did he create? They believe that God created, but he did not create in his holiness. Well, how did he create? They believe that God emanated. What does it mean to emanate? Emanate means to come out of. In other words, God reproduced himself. It's kind of like reverse evolution. Evolution goes from the weak to the strong. God, in their mind, went from the strong to the weak. And this took aeons a year, just like evolution, okay? Nobody ever saw it. <laughs> okay. It just, <laughs> you can't view it. Okay, it took aeons a year, so God is reproducing himself until the point when God got weak enough to create. So, how do you communicate with a holy God? They said, the way that you create, you communicate with a holy God is that you need the angels. The angels were responsible to take you back up through this hierarchy. Every time God emanated, it was called a demiurge. A demiurge is a subordinate Gnostic deity. Y'all just went to seminary, and it's okay. <laughs> but these things are not so beyond us to understand so in order to get your message to a holy God you have to go up through the hierarchy of demiurges and that's why they worship the angels so the idea that man don't make them angels mad okay because <laughs> they're responsible to get your message to a holy God and so therefore uh, they worship the angels and so when I see and understand Doctrine, 
Jesus is God. Jesus is creator. He is holy. And I am saved beyond reproach. Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now I'm in position to ask, how should I live? The Spirit of God lives in me. So now, application. Chapters 3 and 4. He says, chapter 3, verse 1, if you've been raised with Christ and you have, if you died to your old life and you have, Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't live for myself. I live for Christ. Chapter 3, verse 4, if Christ is indeed my life, and he is, and I understand everything that's happened in chapters 1 and 2, I'm going to seek those things that are above, and I set my mind on things that are above. What does that mean? simply means I am to pursue Christ-likeness. I am to desire to live like Christ, and I get my direction from above, and he lives in me. So, I settle in my mind that this is not my life. Have you settled it in your mind that who life you're living? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not your life anymore. It's his life. And he lives in me. And he lives in you. When you understand that, now what should my life look like? I'm just going to get a couple of these and, and then we'll be done. All right. Y'all just witnessed a miracle. I taught you in 30 minutes. But I'm still teaching my class, and it's been two years. We're still in the middle of chapter two. <laughs> it's okay. But talk to any of them. They can rehearse. They can give you this stuff over again, okay? They'll tell you. If I'm going to live for Christ, and there's Christ in my life, man, he, he, he starts off with that I am to be a person of the highest and most excellent moral character. I'm to be a person of the highest and most excellent moral character. He says in verse 5, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desires. The word for sexual immorality is pornea, from which we get pornography. He is saying put away pornography. I'm glad the children left and I'm not going to get too graphic. I still see some children in here, so I'll be careful. Okay, just know that. Uh, but this word is broader than just that one thing. It deals with all type of sexual behavior, immorality, fornication, adultery, incest, rape, pedophilia, bestiality. Molestation, trafficking, prostitution, same-sex relations, homosexuality, bisexuality, transsexuality, gay, queer, put away impure thoughts, lingering filthy thoughts, lustful thoughts, unclean thoughts, unclean passions that are in my mind and that I live out in my body is what he's talking about with passions and evil 
desires. He says, I want to be a person of high moral character. And then he says, I ought to be free from greed and idolatry, covetousness. Uh, verse 5 says, and put away greed, which amounts to idolatry. How I handle money and material things. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will devote to the one and despise the other. No one can serve God and money. Paul told Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Luke chapter 8, verse 8, Jesus said, thou shalt worship the Lord, and Lord and him only shall you serve. Exodus 20 verse 3 says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The idea here is that there's nothing wrong with having money and lots of it. Nothing wrong with having lots of good things. But it's very wrong if the money and the good things have you. Okay. We can have the stuff. We just can't let the stuff have us. You know. Are we using people to gain money and stuff? Are we gaining money and stuff to serve God and people? You see, that's the idea here, idolatry. We're not to be mean-spirited. We're not to be condescending. We're not to be hateful. We're not to be intentionally hurtful, especially when it deals with these same sex issues and immorality, okay? Because we're often labeled that and we're not called to be that way. We're not supposed to be that. But on the other hand, we are not to be silent, okay? We're not to be silent. We don't need to be mean, but we can't be silent. And the world is telling us, do what? Be quiet. Shut up. Don't talk about that. You can talk about everything else. Don't talk about that. But the Word of God says we're not to be silent. Why? Because God is not silent. Okay? And the only reason God is not silent regarding these Issues and Second Corinthians 5, verse 19, 20 says, I am an ambassador of the Lord, the Supreme Jesus Christ, an ambassador just carries the message of the Supreme Leader. Jesus is my Supreme Leader, and he tells me to say, put away immorality. <laughs> and put away greed. That's what he tells me to say. I don't have an option. I'm not to be silent. Why? Because God is not silent. And the, and the consequences are just, I mean, it's major consequences. Chapter 3, verse 6, for because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Do you hear that? Because the wrath of God is laid up for people who live this type of lifestyle. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 10, 9 and 10, Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral or the idolaters. That's our first two things. 
And you know what? At the Jerusalem Council, when Paul went to talk about these things uh, and asked them, well, what should we ask these people to do? And he said, they are not to follow the law. In Acts chapter 15, James stood up, Peter stood up and said, the only thing that we want these people to do is to abstain from idolatry and sexual immorality. Other than that, y'all cool. You're saved. And the first thing on this list here, and everywhere you find it, will be immorality and money. <laughs> these two things tear at the fabric of your society if you don't get them right. Amen. <laughs> okay, I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. I'm back. I used to have this little clapper. I could clap for myself too. I left it at home. That deserves a hand clap. Glory. Amen over there. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love just as we love them, just as Christ also loved you, gave himself up for you, and, and offering a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. Again, Ephesians 5, 1 through 5 says, but sexual immorality and any impurity, and here it is again, the same order, and greed. They're always there in that order. Those two things must not be mentioned among you as is proper among saints or believers. There must be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no vulgar joking, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no sexual, immoral, or impure, or greedy person which amounts to an idolatry, has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. We are not to be silent. Why? Because God is not silent and the consequences are dire. This is life and death. Now, when we talk about these things, especially the immorality, The world says that we're cruel and we're hateful, we're insensitive, we're hurtful, and the word that they label is we are phobic. You have a phobia. I want you to think about what's really hateful and cruel. When you bring eternity into view, you see, God brings eternity into view. When you bring eternity into view, silence is what's hateful. <laughs> That's real hate. If nothing to do with eternity, we can get away with being quiet. But when we see that these things have eternal consequences, to be silent is cruel. To be silent is hateful. God calls us to look at these things from an eternal perspective. To know that those who practice these things will spend an eternity in hell and not to warn them, that's cruel. Alan, that's hateful. To know that they're going to hell if they continue to live this lifestyle and not to tell them, that's hateful. We're called to speak the truth in love, right? We're called to speak. 
the truth. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Truth without love is harsh, it's demeaning, it's condescending. We don't want to beat people over the head with these things. We want to lovingly address it. But on the other hand, love without truth is no love at all. She get that? Love without truth is no love at all. Matter if you're coming down my street and I know that no one has ever gone beyond my street and come back because there's a great chasm and everybody that goes past me falls in and never come back. What kind of love is there that when you pass me, I say, Matt, love you, brother. <laughs> Go. When you fall in that hole, what are you thinking? <laughs> With your unsaved mind. <laughs> no love. What kind of love is that? But I would say, Matt, man, don't go down there. No one has ever come back. You need to turn around. Change. When you fall in that hole, you're not thinking I didn't love you. You're saying, he told me. He told me. How many people are saying, he told me? He told me. He told me. He told me. He told me. Sexual sin and how we deal with money destroys the very fabric of our society. I'm going to wrap it up, okay, because we want to finish on time. Sexual sins destroy, destroy relationships, they destroy ministry, they destroy churches, they destroy marriages. <clears throat> and it's the driving force of abortions. I went to the CDC website to get some statistics on abortions, and I compared married to unmarried. Sex outside of marriage is called fornication. That's what he talks about there. In 2018, there were 515,517 abortions in America. That's just among the 42 states that reported. 500,000, okay, abortions. 439,122, 85% of that was people who were not married. What's driving the abortion industry? Immorality. Even if you take out incest and rape, still the overwhelming driving force for abortion are people who are involved in intimacy who are not married. I'm just the messenger. But we're all the messengers. In Oklahoma, there were about 5,000 abortions in 2018. 81% of those were from unmarried people. 4,052. In Texas, 55,140 abortions. 45,082% were those who were unmarried. What is driving the abortion industry? Immorality. Greed and money is destroying our churches. Immorality is destroying our churches. Problems with our government is, is always goes back to corruption. Problems in our business goes back to corruption. They always tell you to do what? Follow the money. <laughs> Follow the money. Theft, murder, family dysfunction over money. Listen, 
Our message is not to be negative, doom and gloom. That is not what we are selling here. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We have a positive message. The statistics say that even in the church, among all people, one in four women have had an abortion. Lots of pain, lots of guilt, lots of sorrow, especially associated with, with abortion. Men are complicit. We don't talk about the men. There's pain there too. But our message is that there is hope in Jesus, okay? There is forgiveness in Jesus. There is healing in Jesus. There is help for you in Jesus. There is deliverance from the guilt. There is deliverance from the burden of shame in Jesus. How do you know? Look at chapter 1. I mean, 1 Corinthians six eleven. he says, after he's given us that whole list of things, he says, but such were some of you. <laughs> you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been delivered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Colossians 3, 7 said, and these things you once walked when you were living in them. What are you saying here? The church is a place for a bunch of used-to-be's. Okay. Used-to-be sexual immoral people. <laughs> used-to-be alcoholics. Used-to-be greedy. Used-to-be adulterers. Used-to-be abusers. Used to be thieves, used to be homosexuals, used to be swindlers, used to be drug addicts. And all of us have an I used to be story because we have been washed. Amen. And we've been cleansed. There's deliverance from all of these things. We can talk about most everything in the, in the world, but we can't talk about that one topic. They tell us to shut up and be quiet. Then I'm close. Our silence means one of three things. Either we don't know, or we don't care, or we don't have any courage. We don't know, we don't care, or we have no courage. We're scared out of our minds to speak these things. When the creator God who came in the mighty says, go and I will be with you. All power, all authority is given to me. I'm on your side. Why are we scared? We have a positive message. We're not pointing the fingers at them. We're saying, listen, man, listen, lady. I, I used to be, I know some other people used to be, but I know some people, the very they used to be. They're not stuck anymore. You don't have to be stuck in your misery and pain. And if you've gone through this in the church, you don't have to live with that. God says, I forgive you. You are cleansed. You are delivered from that. If you're struggling with that, you can call Hope Pregnancy Center. They'll help you. 
You can call the church, we'll direct you. Last, I'm not saying or suggesting that everyone who commits sexual sin is going to hell. That is not what I'm saying. That is not what the, tree, what the Bible teaches. This refers to those who practice these things because those who practice these things indicate that they have never given their lives to Christ. They have never repented. They have never decided that this is bad. You know. Now you can find churches where they're saying, it's okay to be homosexual. Just come on in. I mean, we're going to ordain some too, okay? And that's totally contrary to what the Word of God says. We're to be people of high moral excellence. We're to be free from idolatry. And my time is up. So you have the outline if I get to preach again. (laughs) Going on, verse 8, you're to be under emotional control. Verse 8, you're to control your tongues. Verse 9 and 10, we're to be honest and trustworthy. Verse 11, verse 11, we're to be humble, not boasting in our ethnicity or our racial differences, but boasting only in Christ. We're to be easy to get along with, verses 12 and 13. We're to be loving toward God and toward others. We're to live for the glory of God in verse 17, verse 18 to 21. We're to have Christ-like homes, Christ-like husbands, Christ-like wives, Christ-like children. We're to be Christ-like at work, verses 22 to four one trustworthy employees, righteous and honorable employers, would it be prayerful, would it be thankful, would it be proclaimers of the gospel, chapter four, verse three and four, vocally presenting the gospel, would it be proclaimers of the gospel, chapter four, verse five, the gospel ought to be on display in the way that we live, and that covers every aspect of my life. If I belong to Christ, that's what it leaves means to live a life pleasing.